0: So black people are like in the South. They have all these different things that we're going to talk about in a few minutes happening to them. But there's all these jobs up north. These are like good opportunities. You have jobs in steel mills, railroads, meatpacking plants, the automobile industry. This is a lot better, right? Why is it better? Because where are they being pushed from?
1: Welcome to The Portable Humanist, the podcast where you can listen to Vermont Humanities talks and learn when you're on the go. I'm Ryan Neuswanger. Throughout the 20th century, African-Americans fled southern states to escape persecution and seek opportunities in northern and western cities, but once they arrived in cities like New York and Chicago, the migrants still faced economic and racial challenges. Known as the Great Migration, this was one of the largest mass internal movements in history and it reshaped our country's culture and politics. In this talk, Dr. Harvey Amani Whitfield explores the Great Migration and its great influence on American history. Dr. Whitfield is a professor of history at the University of Vermont. His talk was recorded on November 16, 2019, as part of the Vermont Humanities Fall Conference. The theme of the conference was Searching for Home, Journeys, Quests, and Migrations. Here's Dr. Whitfield. So I'm here
0: to talk to you about the great migration. And I think, you know, in American history, or at least in African American history, but I think it's true for all of American history, you know, migration is really important. I know immigration is such a hot topic in the United States today, but truth be told, I stopped watching the news two months ago. So I don't, maybe things have changed. I don't know. Um, I know it's the single best decision I've ever made aside from getting married and having uh, my daughter. Um, So, so... But I mean, I don't think you can talk about the Great Migration without mentioning some of the earlier migrations that sort of important to this country. I mean, first, you have the Atlantic slave trade. And you know, funny enough, of I think the 10.7 million people that are brought over to the New World, only about 400,000 of those people actually end up in what we call the United States uh, today. But in fact, a much larger migration, which in some ways is like a precursor to the Great Migration, obviously is the domestic slave trade which has gotten a lot more attention over the last 15 or 20 years. Walter Johnson wrote a great big book about this. Um, He's a professor at Harvard. So from 1800 to 1860, you know, there's about one million people moved from uh, the area that I study slavery in, the Chesapeake region, down to sort of the southwest, right? Alabama, Mississippi, Louisiana, places like that. And it is a lot of those people's descendants who will make up the African Americans who ended up coming up on the Great Migration in the 20th century. But I also think we have to remember that all the different migrations that happened with African Americans um, before the Civil War. Um, and my research sort of focuses on a couple of those migrations that people don't always talk about. One is the migration of between, I'd say, maybe 23 to 25,000 African Americans outside of the United States after the Revolutionary War. Um, we, the numbers are, are hard to get. We think 23 to 25,000. About 8,000 to 10,000 of those people were free. The rest were slaves who were taken by American loyalists. And they went to the Maritimes. They went to, to what we call, uh, we can call today Central Canada. They went to Jamaica. Uh, the Bahamas, and some to England as well. And we also wanna think about those black people who under the auspices, if you can call it that, of the American Colonization Society went to Liberia, right? So another several thousand people, and of course the black people who also migrated to Haiti, even though quite a few of them returned to the United States. And of course, lastly, we don't wanna forget about all the black people who migrated to what at the time was called Canada West, especially after the Fugitive Slave Law in 1850, though they were coming uh, earlier. So it's a, it'll be a lot of fun to talk about this, and we'll sort of talk about all the reasons why people migrated and then sort of why it, it was important. So I'm gonna sort of give you a bit of just a very basic overview. Then we're gonna talk about why migration. We're going to talk about all these different reasons why people actually left. And then we're going to talk about, so what happens when they get to the promised land, this north, right, where things are supposed to go better? And they do go better in a lot of ways, but in some other ways they don't go so great. But we're going to talk about the political realignment that happens in America that's so important to understanding the Democratic Party today. So this, the the Great Migration, what was it? Basically, it's it's from about 1915 to 1970, okay? And during that time, we think about six million African-Americans migrated mostly from the rural South, okay, to the urban North. But when we say North, we don't mean like just New England or the Northeast, we mean like North writ large, right? So including the Midwest, and of course the Northeast, and also after 1940, the West, especially, Los Angeles, places like that. So it's pretty interesting. Um, But I think most historians, we sort of divide The Great Migration, it's probably more accurate to speak about it as Great Migrations, uh, plural, and that's because we usually divide it up into a first Great Migration and then a second Great Migration. We'll do most of our focus today on the first, but when we talk about the first Great Migration, we're really sort of talking about the period 1916 to about 1940. And during that time period, you're talking about maybe one and a half million uh, African-Americans that migrate uh, to the Northeast. But the second great migration, 1940 to 1970, that's several million people, maybe up to 5 million. Um, And that's not only from the rural South, but it's also black people who are in towns in urban areas in the South. Now, to be completely fair about this, Black people were leaving the South, you know, in, in the 1810s, 1820s, 1830s. Of course, the Exoduster movement, black people going out to Kansas in the, in the 1870s. I mean, there's, there's a lot of history there. And there were black people migrating to the Northeast before 1916. The numbers just weren't as big, right? In America, unfortunately, this is a historical and a historiographical problem. We tend to think that history matters just because there's lots of people right? Like, we like to study slavery in South Carolina because somehow it's more important than slavery in Halifax, Nova Scotia because there's a lot more slaves in South Carolina. I don't know if that's the best way to do history, but I think it's important to realize that there were black people that were coming up to the north well before 1916. I wrote an article many, many years ago, uh, too many years ago now, um, and the, uh, in Vermont history, our academic journal for the Vermont Historical Society, and it was about black people in Burlington, 1880 to 1900. And what I found in that is that there were many people in Burlington, there were only probably 115 black people here at that point from from at least what the census records and the city directory said, but a lot of these people were from Tennessee, South Carolina, some some of them were born in, in Vermont, that's for sure. But a lot of them were, so that sort of gives you an idea. The other part that I want to mention about the Great Migration is that it's not so simple as people, they're in Mississippi and then bam, they go to Evanston, Illinois. It's not that simple. A lot of times they'll migrate to one city and for whatever reason, um, they will migrate to another city, could be jobs, could be families. I mean, it's not, very, it's not much different uh, from my friends that do Italian-American history. You know, sometimes Italian-Americans, they might start off in New York, but then they might go somewhere else after that, right? So there's multiple migrations that are going on, and I kind of love that complexity about American history. So why migrate? There's so many things we need to talk about. I'm going to give you a couple overall reasons. A few uh, serious anecdotes, then some ones that are a little more amusing, okay? And we'll talk a little bit about Reconstruction first. Um, and then I'm gonna give you a section on racial violence, because I don't think you can really understate, right, what was going on in the South, it, you know, especially after 1880, right? So, about Reconstruction Reconstruction is like America's great failure, right? And the funny thing about it is that historians, you know, from the from, I would say, the left, like Eric Foner, agree with sort of the more conservative historians uh, of the early twentieth century who thought reconstruction failed because it gave black people too many rights. right? Eric Foner comes along and he says, No, actually, that's not why it failed. It failed because actually black people weren't protected enough. But what happens during Reconstruction? How does this affect the Great Migration? Like, what does that actually mean? So here's the problem, okay? It is a very simple American historical problem of why Reconstruction failed and why you have the Great Migration. So one of the good things about slavery, from people's perspectives like mm, John C. Calhoun or James Henry Hammond or people like that was that it's not just simply a labor system or an economic system, it's definitely that as more, as more recent historiography is showing, but it's also a cultural system, right? And this is what you get in Virginia, right? In the early, 16, in the 1600s. It's the idea that if you're white, at least you're not black, right? If, if you're white, at least you're not a slave. This is important. John C. Callum talked about slavery as a way to reduce you know, class conflict among whites. In that sense, it's like a pretty good idea, right? Because they realized that, you know, if we can convince, you know, in, in Mississippi or Virginia, if we can convince Joe Blow, who owns three slaves, that right, that he has the same interest as, you know, somebody from like the Carter family with 200 slaves, that's winning for us, and it is, right? Because it's a form of Heron-Volk democracy. If you can convince a person, you know, in the South, who is illiterate, okay, has no money, is a tenant farmer, has three teeth, can't read, doesn't know anything about the Constitution, doesn't care either, that's all fine, that he has something in common with John C. Calhoun or Andrew Jackson or Thomas Jefferson, that's a good system because if those people aren't gonna get pissed off at those elites, that's a good thing, right? And that's how the system kind of works. That's what happens after Bacon's rebellion in Virginia, okay, in 1676, right? And that's sort of the system that these people create. It's amazing to me that the Civil War even occurred to be honest, right? But what's the real problem with the Civil War? The problem with the Civil War is very simple. When it ends, all of a sudden, you have four million people who had not been free are all of a sudden free. What do you do with them? And frankly, this is horrible to say, I know, but what do you? What kind of system are you gonna create, right? When all of a sudden, you got a bunch of poor black people, you're a former slave, you're poor, you're not going to have any capital, right? I mean, you're you're a poor black person and you got a poor white person. What's the difference? There is none. You got a problem. You got to fix it. You got to solve it, right? That's what reconstruction and lynching is all about. It's reestablishing a racial hierarchy because when you get rid of something like slavery, that line gets blurred. If you're a poor white person and maybe you can like rent a slave. They actually back then, they rented, like wealthy slave owners would rent slaves, sometimes on layaway, like Walmart. You know They would like sort of let them rent a slave for a little while, then they can get that feeling, maybe they could work their way up. But once you get rid of this system of slavery, how much difference is there between a poor black person and a poor white person? What is that difference exactly, precisely? Well, you, kinda have to, you kind of have to have a system that works that out. Reconstruction, they don't really know what to do. The Republican Party, of course, not surprisingly, they want to expand their uh, hegemony or their interests, shall we say, into the South. The way they think they can do that is by giving uh, some black people, black men, not black women, the franchise. We can give these uh, people the vote. Okay, but how committed are we to giving these black people the vote and then protecting them, right? The great thing about American history, I teach all my students all the time, just because the law says something doesn't make it so. It's like, I always tell them, I'm like, look, if somebody were doing the history of Burlington in 200 years from now, and they said, you know what, I found a a police book that said that, the speed limit on Main Street was 25 miles per hour, so everybody must have gone 25 miles per hour. No, because nobody goes, right? Same thing with Reconstruction. When you pass the 13th Amendment, and then you pass the 14th Amendment, giving black people citizenship and equal protection under the laws, and then you pass the 15th Amendment, you give black men the right to vote, which is very upsetting to a lot of white women who had worked in abolitionist communities, right? That was another whole problem that came out of that. The only way this can, function, or even start to function, is if the federal government is actually willing to have troops down there to support this, right? They have to be willing to protect these people. And really, we always think of Reconstruction as 1865 to 1877, or 1863 to 1877. The truth is, Reconstruction starts ending like in 1869, 70 right because there's less willingness to intervene on the behalf of not only black people but their white republican allies whether they had come from the North, these people we previously called carpetbaggers i don't know if that's the pc term anymore and also remember there were also local southern whites who supported the republicans for a variety of reasons we we used to call them scalawags now the the the, the The problem here is when you're not willing to protect these people through force of arms, they're very vulnerable. And when you have a group like the Ku Klux Klan, the first Ku Klux Klan, and they weren't all in the Ku Klux Klan, right? Because when the federal government decides this is so embarrassing, we have to like basically ban the Klan with the enforcement acts, they just go out in the open and start shooting people, right, and killing people. And they're not just killing former slaves, they're doing that but they're also killing white Republicans, people who were like state legislators. They're killing them in the streets. And basically, what ends up happening is the federal government becomes less and less willing over time to intervene, right? By the time Grant is in his second term of what we can only call an unfortunate presidency, great general, not such great president, he's not really willing to intervene. And he gets calls from people in Mississippi, Republican state legislator calls like sort of telegrams, Uh, they get letters, everything sent to him, and he doesn't, he's not willing to go as far as needed to sort of support reconstruction, right? Um, They're just not willing to intervene. So in Mississippi and Alabama, they sort of have something that we call the shotgun policy, which is basically if black people showed up to vote, they knew they would get killed. I mean, it, it's, pretty, it's simple but effective, right? The 14th Amendment doesn't mean anything if you know you're gonna get murdered for voting. You, you probably just want to have a little bit of land that you're leasing, right? And ha- you know, have your wife or your husband or your children be and hopefully be able to keep them somewhat safe, at least, you're, at least they can't sell you apart from your family, right? So those are sort of the many reasons why reconstruction fails. But the sort of racial aspect angle that we're gonna talk about a little bit more, um, that's only part of the reason why people uh, leave uh, during the Great Migration. There's a lot of other reasons, and we usually divide them up, everyone, into sort of like what we call push-pull factors, right? Push means you're pushed out of a place, and pull means you're sort of drawn to a place. Um, the push factors are pretty obvious. We're going to go into detail about them. It's basically the sort of racial violence that people are facing, especially after 1880, right? I mean, Reconstruction is insanely violent, but it, it, gets, it, it takes another step in the 1880s and 1890s when people are actually, you know, when you start having these public lynchings, these sort of festivals of violence, right? Where people are cutting off arms, hands, cutting out people's hearts, cutting off people's genitals, and selling them, right? It's like, a, it's like an extra level. So we're gonna sort of talk about that, but people move for many reasons, so that's the push thing. The pull factor is in the North, what they see are, especially during World War I, are these opening of all these sort of industry and manufacturing. And we have to remember that at the very same time, the war really halts European immigration, which had been super, super heavy between 1880 and 1914, okay? And these white people who came over during that time period, they were not treated very well either. Many of them were from Southern and Eastern Europe, and they were sort of looked down upon. They were not seen as, uh, you know, they they were not seen as uh, Northwestern European, right? They really saw these people as sort of uh, inferior. So there had been all sorts of pushes to stop this kind of immigration. And that's why you get something like eugenics and University of Vermont was one of the centers of eugenics right? This sort of idea, we got to stop all these Europeans, these sort of, I mean, these lesser than white people. Like today, to us, we might see them and think, what are they talking about? But to Americans back then, these people were not Americans. They weren't even really white. They were something less than that. They might not have quite been black, but closer to that than to the, to, to the uh, Northwestern uh, British model, right? That was sort of one of the things that was going on. So the war sort of stops this European immigration. There's less cheap labor, so there's all these jobs. So black people are, like, in the South. They have all these different things that we're going to talk about in a few minutes happening to them, but there's all these jobs up north. These are, like, kind of good opportunities. You have jobs in steel mills, railroads, meatpacking plants, the automobile industry, right? This is a lot better, right? Why is it better? Because where are they being pushed from? We haven't talked a lot about the economics of African-Americans after um, the Civil War. The majority of black people in the South, um, the majority of them are either tenant farmers or they're sharecroppers. And in this system of sharecropping or tenant farming, they're sort of caught in a cycle of poverty. Right, they don't own the land that they're on. Sharecropping gives them a little bit more independence than tenant farming, um, but they're both systems that basically exploit cheap labor. They don't make a lot of money, they're always in debt. It's not a good situation. If there's any schools around, they're not that good. You know, they're putting all the kids, whether they're age five to 19, 18, in the same little schoolhouse. It's, it's not a good situation. So the North has all these things that it seems to be offering. So people see this, and they're kind of like, we should do this. Now, white Southern reaction at the very beginning is sort of like, well, they're kind of happy that black people are leaving because they kind of hold them in low regard, right? At the same time, They don't really want to lose all these tenant farmers and sharecroppers. It's the exact same situation that you read about in the Constitutional Convention, right, that you see people like Thomas Jefferson in his notes on the state of Virginia or George Washington in all of his letters, you know, that they struggle with, especially the Virginian planting elite in the 1780s and 1790s, right? They want Virginia to be whiter. They do, they have all sorts of insane plans. I mean, there's, some of them are like literally crazy. But, but they, they want Virginia to be whiter. They think there's too many black people there, but they don't wanna give up the black people in Virginia because they know that's their economy. And this is the same thing they're struggling with at the Constitutional Convention. They sort of know, theoretically, that slavery's kind of bad. Now they have a lot of reasons why it's bad, right? A lot of them had to do with what it did to white people, if you can believe that. That was their, one of their biggest fears, right? but they kind of know in theory, they think about John Locke, they think about all the, you know, the Enlightenment, like, eh, you know, maybe it's wrong, but they're like, what can we do about it? All these black people are here, and they couldn't really uh, conceive of a biracial democracy. Like, what we're doing in this room, as harmless as it might seem, was like something that was a little too much for them. This is a situation of white Southerners in 1910s, 1920s. They kind of, you know, they look down on black people, but they also realize it's a source of cheap labor, so, How do you deal with this, right? Well, black people are like, this is great, we're out of here, right? Uh, Some of them, because they are sort of excited because there are a lot of black newspapers in the North that are printing articles and they're being taken down to the South. So you have newspapers like the Pittsburgh Courier, and the Chicago Defender, and they encourage black southerners to basically move north. And black railroad porters and dining car employees distribute thousands of copies all throughout the South. People are reading them and people are thinking, maybe this is a good idea. Uh, One editorial from the Chicago Defender said to other black people, to die from the bite of frost is far more glorious than that of the mob. I beg of you, my brothers, to leave that benighted land, you are free men. Now, if we can excuse the gendered language when he says free men, I think he meant all, all people, but um, it, it, it's the money issue as well. You can make a lot more money up north than you could, I mean, even just being in domestic service, you could make more money weekly, monthly, than you could ever make sharecropping. Um, just to give you an example, um, one man, who came from the South Carolina and Georgia Sea Islands area, and that's the subject of my first book, was these people from the Georgia uh, Sea Islands who ended up in Nova Scotia after the War of 1812. Is a very strange story, but um, he said, I could work and dig all year on the island. The best I could do would be to make $100 and take a chance of making nothing. Well, I figured I could make around $30 or $40 every week up here, and at that rate, I could probably maybe even save $100 every couple months. He ended up settling in Philadelphia, and then he moved to Brooklyn, New York. Just to give you another example, you know, a lot of people are moving up there, and a lot of times it's for it's racial violence, a lot of time is for uh, economic things, but we have to f- remember that these folks who are living in the South, they're people. Right? I tell my students this all the time because whenever we talk about slavery, they or this kind of thing, they have this big idea of like this mass of black people, they're all the same, and their lives are just horrible. You know, and I try to remind them of what Ralph Ellison said. You know, African American history has to be more than the sum of its brutalization. It has to be more than that. So when I say that, what I mean by that is that these are people, I mean, they were born into this world, you know? What we might think, how could anybody live in this world? This is the world, this is their lives. And they were different types of people. Some were strong, some were weak, some were tall, some were short. Some had uh, you know, musical talent, some did not. There's a wide range of people who are moving up there and doing it for a wide range of ideas. And a lot of times they're human beings and sometimes they're 18 years old and they're young and they have blood pumping through their veins. They wanna have a good time. Good example of this was a woman who left the isolation of St. Helena's Island, another Georgia, uh, South Carolina Sea Island. She said, I got, they were like, why did you move here? And she said, I got tired of the island, too lonesome. Go to bed at six o'clock, everything dead. No dances, no movie picture show, no nothing because every once in a while they would have a dance, but here you can go to them every Saturday night. And honestly, that's the reason people move here more than anything else. <laughs> right, like that's the thing, it's like when we talk about these big issues, economic, racial violence, that's just all true. And none of that's made up, but we have to also remember these people are human beings. And sometimes it's like, okay, I'm, here I am, I live in some like rural, South Carolina, and I wanna go to Harlem because I heard Harlem's a lot of fun. And I can make more money. And I might not get lynched, right? So, I mean, so people decide to do that. And so people are migrating and and everybody, just to give you an example of some of the numbers, New York had 91,709 black people in 1910. By 1920, it had 152,000. Chicago had 44,000 black people in 1910. By 1920, it had 109,000. That might help explain the race riot of 1919 in Chicago, right? Um, And, you know, it wasn't just some of the big cities we're thinking about. Think about a place like Gary, Indiana. Gary had 383 black people in 1910. By 1920, it had 5,299. so people are going to different places and for a lot of different reasons. But I think one of the big things we want to we talk about um, is sort of the racial violence, because it, it really is so extreme, especially after 1889. Lynching is one of those phenomenon in American history that's so, I mean, I don't know how else to say it, it it seems extremely American to me in that it's extremely violent, right? It's a weird form of sort of controlled violence against a very specific and targeted group. And people, I mean, sometimes my students, and I don't know about anybody here, have this idea that when people were lynched, they did it like late at night in the dark, like by themselves. I'm like, no, no. They did it in front of like thou- hundreds, thousands of people, and they made postcards of it. <laughs> like, literal postcards. People weren't ashamed of this. And as I'm sure every- everybody in this room was well-educated, I'm sure as we all know, the reason that people thought black people were getting lynched wasn't the actual reason black people were actually getting lynched, right? The view... As one Little Rock, Arkansas paper said, and I won't pretend that this is my own work. I've taken uh, many of these examples from a very famous historian, um, Leon Litwack. He did a really good job trying to explain, why is this happening? Why why is this going on? One Little Rock, Arkansas paper sort of summed it up. It said, as long as black people, quote unquote, uh, cast their lustful eyes on white women, Uh, that there would be a reaction. And this was very important. And the same newspaper said, this may be Southern brutality uh, lynching, uh, as far as the Boston Negro can see, but in polite circles, we call it Southern chivalry, a Southern virtue that will never die. But here's the crazy thing about this, is that the fear of black men raping white women, or black men and white women having consensual sex, right, it didn't, they did not seem to distinguish, was very, very upsetting for these people. But can I just tell you how bizarre this is for me? I mean, as I go on with this, I I can't help but tell you is like, okay, I can trace my heritage back to 17th century Virginia and I come from a long line of slaves and slave owners, and, you know, growing up, I just, people just told me that I was black, so I was like, okay, Uh, you know, that my family, that's just what it was, and um, I I think the the weird thing for me is I took an ancestry DNA test, and it messed my mind up, right, (laughs) that it can do that to you, because I found out that I was like 53% European. I had never even been told anything about that in my life. I had never been told about all this English, British, Scottish, Irish heritage that I had. My friend Sean Field, he's a wonderful medieval historian, he's like, welcome to the club. And I like, I had no, but I literally had no idea. But it's very clear that my third great grandfather, who was a soldier for the Confederacy, he's a white guy, you know, I mean, like direct relation, you know, obviously he was sleeping with uh, he was young, he was only 17 or 18, with an enslaved uh, black woman. But it was very common for white men's first experience to be with enslaved black women. That was not uncommon. A lot of the, a lot of the archive the slave, uh, slave historians are working with to look at these different relationships are uncovering this, right? I mean, it's, it's everywhere. You see it in letters, I mean, this sort of thing. And of course, the, 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 the biggest example, obviously, is Strom Thurmond, right? We all remember good old Strom, Thurmond, right? This black, with his, with his black daughter, right? You can't, you can't avoid this sort of stuff. So it, it's very interesting that there was this gigantic fear post-Civil War of uh, rape or sex between black and white, right? Before the Civil War, it's not the same level of concern. There are different concerns. One of the biggest concerns is, well, what if the uh, mother is white and the father is black. It wasn't this sort of sexualized thing. It was more like, what do you do with this child, right? Because if it's a white mother, the child was free. So that's a problem. So how do we understand this? So basically, um, in actuality, rape or sexual indiscretion actually was a relatively minor cause of the mob violence. Of the 3,000 black people known to have been lynched between about, you know, 1889, uh, 1918, only about 20% were accused of rape. The majority of them were lynched for super trivial reasons. I mean, it's like, I mean, okay, it's depressing, but it's so outrageous, I can't say, it's like, it's, it's so hard to believe. But some of the offenses included the following, using disrespectful language, being insulting, being insolent, being boastful, threatening, using my favorite word, incendiary language, insubordination, impertinence, uh, improper demeanor, a sarcastic grin, laughing for too long, or too long of a prolonged silence refusing to doff one's cap to a white person, refusing to give the right of way, and this is like something that could definitely get you lynched. There were all sorts of reasons, right? You could jump a labor contract, meaning you left a household that wanted to, or somebody that wanted to still employ you, well, you could get lynched for that. Um, But all sorts of examples, for example, Uh, Charles Jones, who was from Georgia, was lynched by 150 white people for stealing a pair of shoes and quote-unquote talking big. Thank you again, Leon Litwack, for this. Henry Sykes was lynched in Mississippi for calling up white girls on the telephone and annoying them. Jeff Brown accidentally brushed against a white girl as he was running to catch a train, and a mob hanged him for attempted rape. And I think we have to understand all of this sort of happening you know, in light of what one federal official said in Wilkinson County, Mississippi. He said, when a nigger gets ideas, the best thing to do is to get him underground as quick as possible. And I think that just about sums it up, right? I mean, but the best example I can give you, again, thank you, Leon Litwack, is from Rufus Moncrief. He made one mistake when on his way home from work, he encountered a group of men He did not display the expected, humble demeanor and seemed reluctant to pull off his hat to them when they spoke to him. The men beat him badly, and soon other people joined in the attack, some of them severing Moncrief's limbs with a saw. They dragged what remained of him to a nearby tree and strung him up as they continued to mutilate his body." For good measure, they hung Moncrief's dog next to him and then informed Moncrief's wife that she would find two black puppies hanging to a tree and ordered her to remove them quickly or the farm would be burned down. The 80-year-old woman cut the bodies down and placed them in uh, large oat bags for burial. The coroner's inquest, of course, and this was very common, decided that Moncrief had come to his death by hands unknown. All it is is like just racist terrorism is literal terrorism. Because if this didn't happen to you, you know it's, it, you, you hear about it. You know that it could happen to you. So, I mean, you know, going up north doesn't seem like a really bad idea. And I don't think that black people moving up north were dumb enough to think that the north was gonna be, like, great. But it was better. You know, my, my, uh, my father's mother, um, she was extremely light skinned. Um, they lived in uh, Amitt, Mississippi. Anybody ever been down there? Yeah. It's a pretty infamous from the Civil Rights days. So this is like, she, she left there in like the 1910s. But it was so bad in Mississippi, our family left Mississippi and moved to Alabama for a couple of years. Because it was that much better. I'm not making this up. And then they went to, um, they, then they, they went to, uh, to Evanston, Illinois. And so my grandmother became a pharmacist, and her son, my dad, who's now 80 years old, uh, he uh, became a medical doctor, and and he lives in Evanston. Um, But just gives you an idea of what these people were actually dealing with. I think we're pretty clear on why they moved north. So what happens in the north, and why does it matter? So they get to the north. They're in all these different cities, right? But... Even though things aren't great, and there are race riots throughout the North in the 1910s, there's Chicago, 1919, I think East St. Louis in 1917, there's a series of other outbreaks of racial violence. Chicago is incredibly violent. There's been several books written about that. Um, All that stuff is true, but they could get a factory job, they could feed their family, Um, they could vote, right? or at least try to. Um, And I think that's that's extremely important. And voting is one of the most important things that happens, being able to start to exercise the franchise in the 1920s and 1930s. And I'm not so sure, in fact, I actually, I don't know. I don't know if you have a civil rights movement, if you don't have more and more black people moving up north and voting, especially in swing states you know, whether we, can, whether we agree with the Electoral College or not, and I can think of like 3,000 reasons not to, um, in, this, in this sense, it actually helped black people because they were moving up to Cleveland, Cincinnati, right? Columbus, okay? Chicago. and their vote, they can tip an election. They can tip a state, right? And think about the democratic elections that will come after the 1920s. Think about this coalition that Roosevelt builds, right? All of a sudden black people can vote, right? So FDR, and let's give credit where credit's due to Eleanor Roosevelt, because she was way more supportive of racial justice than FDR. FDR said, I don't know if we can bring about the century quite yet. <laughs> you know, because he he you know, he might have wanted to do more. It's a little hard to read that way. Um, but he certainly was more willing to help black people than any of these presidents between 1900 and 1932 when he get you know I mean, he was open to that, but it 's because black people are moving north it 's because they can vote, and they start voting. Now we have to remember, I mean as weird as it sounds today, um, black people voted for the Republican Party almost exclusively, right from 18. 18- you know, the 1860s on. But it's in the 1930s and 1940s that this starts to change. People in the Democratic Party start to notice. So what does the Democratic Party do? They got a weird coalition going. They got the Deep South, right? They got the people like Strom Thurman, the descendants of James K. Vardaman, right? They have all of these people who are, Uh, you know, in it, who are sort of Southern, anti-black people, but black people will start to vote for the Democratic Party. And this is a very interesting thing. So by 1948, of course, the Democrats, they adopt a civil rights plank. And out of that, of course, the Deep South, or people who aren't happy, who don't think the Democratic Party is sufficiently racist enough, okay, they form the, the Dixiecrat party, right? And they, they decide, okay, we're, we're going to do this. And some of those people who would be left over in the late 60s, early 70s, they would switch over to the Republican Party. Um, now, we have to be careful because not all black people immediately switch to the Democratic Party. Uh, my grandfather voted for the Republican Party are well into the 1970s, probably. Um, and, of course, we know Edward Brooke, who didn't die all that long ago. is the first black person elected. To the senate post reconstruction he was a republican and when he was asked toward the end of his life why he had left the republican party he said i didn't leave it he said they left me and you know that's coming from edward brooke he's not exactly what i would call like super far left okay so it that's an interesting thing so the question is of course as we talk more about this you know what Black people in the future, at some point, go back to the Republican Party, the original party that they voted for. I guess we don't know. We, we don't know what's going to happen in the next twenty years. We think we do. I don't think it's a very good, very likely right now. But, but you never know. I always like that example for my students because it always helps them see how these parties can shift and so on and so forth. Um, but black people become, as we know now, the sort of the backbone of the Democratic Party. I mean, they're they're very important. I mean JFK. In 1960, I mean, if he won the election, he barely won it, right? Nixon could have challenged that. He didn't. But, right, black people helped, right? Um, does, does Kennedy win without the black vote in 1960? I, I, don't, I doubt it, but y- you can see that black people did vote for him, and they voted for LBJ. And one of the most ironic things about the Great Migration are these black people moving to the north, and we've talked about for all these different reasons, you know, it seems to me that the two presidents that were best for black civil rights were two white Southern males, Harry Truman and LBJ, right? I mean, LBJ was way better on civil rights than some of the earlier ones. Um, so it's an, it's a very interesting thing. The last thing I want to mention uh, that I think is important is the cultural exchange that happens, right? I think that's I think that's super important is you have this sort of cultural exchange that happens in the sense that black people are migrating up to these northern cities, and you have this blossoming of sort of African-American culture in terms of like literature, in terms of uh, music, right, with jazz. So especially in Chicago, you know, you think of the Harlem Renaissance. So you have all of that. And as I said, when this migration takes place in the 1930s and 40s, and then we have the further migration on top of it, you have certain issues that make the civil rights movement difficult. So what happens with the Civil Rights Movement? How does the Great Migration influence this? This is a very sort of touchy sh- subject for people, right? Because it's pretty clear that you know Martin Luther King and some of the leaders of the Civil Rights Movement, what they did and spoke for, even though toward the end of his life he was moving on towards more of a class-based issue, it was very helpful for middle-class African Americans, right? Like, my parents could not buy a house in Chevy Chase, Maryland in like 1967. They literally actually couldn't. Okay? But when they went back in 1981, I was only a couple years old, um, they could buy it. So, in some, that part of the civil rights movement was very successful for middle and upper class black people. But one of the things that happens with this migration, especially after 1940, is people moving to black urban areas, right? with all the problems that go along with urban settlement and so on and so forth. And some black people, obviously not all, in these urban areas did not think that the civil rights movement spoke to them. They felt maybe Malcolm X speaks a little more to us, or better yet, as you get into the later 60s, the Black Panthers speak more for us. They're speaking a language, they're talking about breakfast, they're talking about issues with the police, these things actually matter to us. And of course, what do you have in the late 1960s? Some people call this a failure of the civil rights movement. The Kerner Commission talked about this, right? What do you have in the late 1960s? You have a ride in Bedstein in 65. You have Newark in 67. You have Detroit in 67, right? There's a, there's a lot of race riots. So a lot of these people who have migrated up, maybe their children were there, and plus the second wave, right? So who was the civil rights movement speaking to? This is a sort of a broader question, Um, but I think we can all agree that the Great Migration is one of the most important events in American history. Now, more recently, there's been a bit of a reverse Great Migration into certain parts of the South. The reason is there are pretty good jobs. Taxes are lower. It's cheaper, much cheaper, actually, to live in many parts of, not all of them, but many parts of the South, and there are though it's not perfect, what, uh, what people in the hip-hop industry would call, uh, I'm talking white and black now, would call um, the New South. They had a New South in the 1880s. Turned out that was a little bit more like the Old South. But now they talk about the New South and they talk about it you know, in terms of improved race, race relations. So there has been a bit of black people moving back down to the South, and we see, you know, whatever we think, you know, a black woman could run for governor in Georgia and come within two points of winning. You could have a black man run in Florida. And 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 don't kid yourself, we haven't talked a lot about colorism within the black community, and we can, but the fact that you have uh, two darker-skinned African-Americans, Andrew Gillum and Stacey Abrams, running in the South, in doing so well, even though they didn't quite win, I think says something. Now, what exactly that will mean, I guess we'll see. So thank you so much.
1: Thanks for listening to The Portable Humanist. Visit our website at vermonthumanities.org podcasts for a transcript of this episode and for more information about Vermont Humanities.